In a world of EMS podcasters, EMS Office Hours is the only live podcast bringing you the latest topics and opinions in EMS. Turn down your scanner and turn up your speakers as we join Jim Hoffman and Josh Knapp on their latest EMS podcasting journey. Yeah, I don't know if we can't oh, be heard during the intro, but they might be able to see you, Josh, doing that. So, no, no promises there. But uh, welcome to EMS Office Hours. Of course, I am Jim Hoffman, and I am Josh Nile, and I'm Dave Brenner. Dave, who didn't get on the intro uh, voiceover because he no. wasn't with us when I when I did that. I'm okay. Uh, so he's not admitted on purpose. It's just that he wasn't there with us when I had that recorded by the uh, voiceover people over at uh, Fiverr. So friends of the podcast should know that we're not against volunteers. We just do think Dave is a second-tier citizen. Yes, that's what happened. It's just straight up Dave. It's not, you know, that he's a volunteer or anything. Mm. So I, I will encourage people to go to emsofficehours.com because the site was down for a little bit. Not down, but I, it was a little wonky. They were doing some upgrades in the background, so I couldn't post episodes. I couldn't post any videos or anything like that. But now it is good to go. So feel free to go there and um, uh, uh, check out all the episodes and some of the videos that I post there and whatnot. So. Um, today, I guess, guys, I want to get sort of right into it. One thing is kind of a silly, well, it's not silly, but I don't know, Josh, have you heard or seen things on Facebook about I have. Uh, the FDNY, and now they are going to be recording or monitoring everyone's bathroom breaks? What? No, I have not heard anything about that. And Yeah. They are they are going to be monitoring the bathroom breaks of units now because apparently people multiple units were taking, you know, the one hundreds as they call them there in, in the in the city, um, and refusing assignments. Right. Well, so that's now, that's always been the case, though, especially on a hot summer day. You know, you gotta you gotta stop for yourself. Well, this I mean, is the thing is that now, well, that, that's part of the, their concern is that because of the warm, the warmer months are coming on, that they people are going to be doing this, and they're not going to have enough units to respond to you know to calls. They're going to be pulling units from other areas to cover units that are going out for facilities. Right. So, I, personally, I'm, I'm a little, um, I don't know. All my years in EMS, I never had to take an official facility. Right. I was able to, when I got to a hospital, it's busy enough so that you go to a hospital fairly frequently. And when you get to the hospital, while your partner's putting the truck back together, you can run to the bathroom. You right. Know? Now, there are right. cases, I'm sure, where there's an emergency situation where you, get, you, know, you really, you know, you have a, an issue going on. You got to get to the hospital, get to a gas station or something like that. And, and uh, you know, take a facility, but really, the I guess it's the the upsetting part of it. I guess is people feel their privacy now is being invaded 
with with that, you know, justifying the fact that they have to go to the bathroom, you know? Um, yeah, uh, you know, quite honestly, uh, quite honestly, Jim, um, I just took, thanks, Dave. I was just taking a look at that, uh, that article in the post. Yeah, because I, I know there was, and that article Dave uh, posted. I'll put the article in the show notes um, on the recorded version of this. But you know, the the, the one of the things was that there was a, a boss approached a, a female about it, and you know she had that it was a time of the month for her, so she had to take several facility breaks. You know, uh, you know, personal facility breaks, and she felt very embarrassed that she had to explain this to her male. Supervisor, you know, I guess there's that level of, of, you know, discomfort that's going on for people, but that's sort of invasion of privacy happening there. Um, But then the other side of it, too, is that we can have a little bit of realistic backup view on this. Josh is frozen. He's frozen. Take it away, Dave. Well, you know, People are going to have to go to the bathroom, and can can it be? Is that a thing that can be abused? Absolutely, people yeah. can can use it to get out of work. Um, and I suspect somewhere in the middle that uh, there people are entitled to their privacy, and there should be an expectation that you're going to be available, um, and these things should be predictable. Perhaps um, when you're going on a break, you you know. It shouldn't be discovered as as you're being dispatched to a call, right? Well, that's okay, the thing I was so, thinking too. Is that it's, it's people that it's people that end up saying, "Oh no, they're fine," and then they get some crappy assignment, and they're like, "Oh, I have to go to the bathroom, so I can't take that." Right no, now. no, that's different because if you've called for a hundred, and then they call you, you can turn down the job. If uh, yes. th- this is the technicalities. If you haven't called for a hundred, we're thinking it in your head, and you get a job, well, you just hold it in. But I, yeah. you know, I want to turn this around a little bit and say, you know, here we are, the city's uh, looking at um, t- attrition like they haven't had in twenty years. They are looking at both retirements and injuries after the COVID, uh, after the COVID uh, disaster in the city that, you know, it burned people out, it caused people PTSD, it injured people because they were doing heavier work back to back, sicker people and getting sick themselves. And all of that needs to be factored in instead of coming down and saying, well, you know, because because we fired John, we have to give you John's work. So now we fired John to save money, but you're doing twice the work. And I think yeah. there's an aspect of that that needs to be considered in this equation. Now, is there an abuse of, of hundreds? Listen, it's a 20 freaking minute break and you're allowed to a shift. So how much abuse, even if you're abusing it, how much abuse can you put into it? You know, they're they're bristling at the idea. Oh, they're turning down jobs. We'll get another unit. Oh, you don't have another unit? Maybe you should reevaluate your hiring practices. Yeah, I think that's part of it too. I I feel like there's you know because they're they're operating on such a slim margin of units that are available to begin with, 
that as soon as the unit goes out of service, even if it's not, not forget the hundreds, units that go out of service just because of mechanical reasons or personal injury or something like that, or out BVP extended at a hospital, something like that, you know, right away they start freaking out. You know, you're if you're doing that, you're out there, you're restocking, you're you're, you're cleaning your truck out. How often? I, mean, I know for myself, I've had patrol bosses come and check out to see what was taking me so long because they want to get you back in service because the, the the amount of units they have out there to cover is is so you know slim that they can't really handle anything over one or two units going out of service. So I think that's be happening maybe more frequently than what they what they wanted to. I mean, it's a complex. Yeah, I do believe it's it's definitely happening more frequently than they wanted to. But I think it's complex. There are aspects of the changes in the job. I remember back in the day, we used to keep us keep a separate container of our own restock in in the. Uh, no, I wasn't going there, Dave. I saw that look. Uh, we, for our own restock. So you do something, you do an arrest, which takes a, a, a good involved arrest, takes a bit to restock. If you have the stuff in your cabinets, you can go into pretty much in service, grabbing the stuff as you need as you go. Sure. Now they, they, they have cracked down on that like you can't believe, because what were they finding? They were finding that 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 box that we were using to sort of pull our drugs and equipment from restocking had been sort of cycled haphazardly in the bus and there were expired meds. Expired meds are a big deal in the EMS system. So you yeah. get, you know, you get in trouble for that. The uh, organization gets in trouble for that. So what did they do? They said, you, you can't do that. Right, right. There are fines, substantial fines. But what did they do? They said, well, you can't do that anymore. Okay, fine. When I go out, restock then, I have to be at base. I can't go to any base in the city. I have to go to my base. I have to pull from my drug locker, and I have to restock that way. There's a back. I have to walk back and forth depending on how far I've walked from the, you know, it could take uh, 20 minutes. And in some cases, let's say, you know, they ran out of something. It's been a busy day, and they ran out of, of uh, epinephrine okay. or something, you know, and they have to get it from the back room where it's in the refrigerator. Now you have to talk to a supervisor who has the keys. He has to find the keys. He has to go to the back room. He has to get the box. He has to chalk it off on the inventory, bring it out to you, and then you can take, you know, your five tubes. But reality, reality here. So I, I want to circle back to the idea of, you know, being on the truck, working a, a day, and taking a break. And let me tell you something. There are studies, and Dave can talk to this, I'm sure, way better than me. Uh, there are multiple studies that say, hey, you know what? For your peak functioning, a break is a good thing. Sure. Oh, yeah. We've talked about that on other shows in the past about that, about the, the idea of, you know, being – need to take a break, especially if you're on longer shifts, you know, um, that it does affect you. I mean, listen, the, the, sadly, it was an EMT who just took her life because of the stress of the job and, and COVID and, and, and all. And, you know, so to me, it's like, okay, well, is that bathroom break? Like you said, Josh, people want to take the break. I think what happens is that people are forced to take a bathroom break to get some kind of break 
you know, throughout the day when they're getting back-to-back calls over and over again without any sort of, uh, you know, relief, you mm-hmm. know? And especially, you know, listen, and, and I know at the NY, you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're doing an eight-hour shift and you're getting hammered all day. And then all of a sudden you find out you're getting mandated that day, you know? So then now there's an incentive to, okay, well, now I got to take a break because I don't see any end to this day coming. Right. Right. You know, you know, and, you know, even if it look, I, I was thinking, you know, in the in the summer, I was remembering back to that the enormous blackout we had in the city. Uh, I think it was 2003, 2004, something like that. And it, you know, all of a sudden your average job just became a 24 carry down and yeah. people and then you had the people panicking on top of that. And it really added to, you know, heat stresses more than just the EMS, you know, responder. Heat stresses the entire system. Yeah. And, 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 you know, to turn it around at the beginning of the summer when we're already experiencing these mini heat waves of in the springtime, we're having temperatures well into the 90s. You know, and then to turn around and blame blame the the people in the front line, I, I start to think of four letter words to describe my next feelings. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to end that end this topic. I want to get on to something else, guys. But the one thing I will say, I don't know. If, I read the article, um, and one of the union people were trying to tell the people they should be taking pictures of their. Get out of here. And to me, I understand it's sort of this really, you know, you, you're kind of pissed off at, at, at the upper, you know, the, the upper echelon people and all, but this is something that's in the general public's view now. And it makes, I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't shed good light on EMS when your union rep is telling you to take pictures of you know, evidence that that you went to the bathroom. You know that that you know what? Quite honestly, that's an invasion of privacy. Um, and I think that there, you know, if if that were being really suggested, in no, no, in that wasn't being manner, suggested by the city. The no, union that's right. The, the union rep is telling the 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 you know the the membership to take pictures and send it to you, tend to send to the supervisor, so they can attach it to the report that, you know, of all the uh, hundreds that we're taking, and, and I'm like, all right, it, you know, it, it's a little unprofessional, and, you know, when you're sitting there, on one hand, you're saying, we need more money and more um, recognition as a, a, a service in the city, and then the other hand, you're going to say, but we're going to send pictures of our poop to our supervisor. Well, you know, and, and just to that end, and I know we want to switch over to another topic, but just to that end, um, there was a fantastic article. It's probably going to win a Pulitzer Prize on um, on the uh, warehouse environment in Amazon and Amazon's hiring practices and what they were doing. And obviously, the hiring practices don't correlate to EMS, but the stress. It, what it, what? And even though there's nothing there that says, "Oh, you can't take a bathroom break" or "You can't do that." There are they're measuring every other my my every other bit of minutia about your activities, productivity, and counting it against you, productivities, and 
what they were what they were finding is, you know, the you everybody's heard the story about workers peeing in bottles and, and such like that, so they didn't have to leave the line. And it's not, and then Amazon says there's no reason for that. They could take a bathroom break. Well, but if you're gonna take a bathroom break and then measure it over the month of all the bathroom breaks that you had, and you're measuring it down to the second and then doing reports down to the minute, the stress of that makes you behave, makes the worker behave in certain ways that is not beneficial to the worker's overall health. And I think that that's a factor that these type of suggestions need to be considered before people who, you know, listen, de Blasio's the guy who said, yeah, we'd give a raise to everybody else, but EMS is different. I mean... Yeah. Let's just not lose focus on what has come out of that that mouth. All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll, end, we'll end it there. And listen, uh, and you talk about metrics. So I worked at a place. I left the place because it was a great place to work. The people were great. And the, the education that was provided there, the continuing education was, was phenomenal. But the 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 they measured every metric that we did you hit the brakes too hard on your ambulance yeah all that stuff no backing up of the ambulance no you're hitting the brakes too hard you're turning too hard you're taking long to get into service too long on scene too long in the hospital and you know and then they would have you know the 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 they would give you sort of an incentive that if every quarter if everybody in the entire department made the numbers you got a little bit of a bonus. You got a bonus truck. Yeah. A bonus check. Amazing. How right. often did you get a bonus truck? Uh, but bonus the funny thing is, is that there were things that would be out of your control that you couldn't help. Like one of the metrics was the, if they were in the, um, uh, within the budget guideline for that quarter. So if they were under budget for that quarter, that was one of the metrics that would qualify, you know, for it. So you're out there on the street, hurrying along and trying to push through jobs and getting in service and all this stuff. But then the administration end of it, if they didn't held up their end of the bargain and make sure they weren't spending too much, you didn't get a bonus, you know? So it was almost, well, and then they had to save it, right? what, they had to save it for the president. People, people want the bonus, right? People want the bonus. So, then there's that peer pressure of everyone pressuring each other to get in service and it's sort of like everyone's pushing each other. And then there's a little, there's sometimes people get over the top and there's a little bit of an animosity going on between other units and stuff that you're taking too long. I'm out of here fast, but you're taking too long. You're messing up the time. We're not going to get a bonus. And, you know, and it just, I didn't like it. And that was one of the reasons why I bailed on that place. Anyway, so one thing I want to talk about is, and I, I posted a meme and some pictures about this on Facebook, and I, I gave a lot of feedback on it, um, is the calls that we get, and this ties into sort of another thing, if we have time, but uh, calls that you get where nothing is going right, you know, where no matter what you do, what interventions you do, Nothing you do is is turn the patient around, you know, 
Um, and you're doing everything right. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not taking shortcuts. You're not missing IVs. You're not giving wrong medications or anything like that. You know, just just to kind of fog your sick there. Everything you're doing is is right on point. But for whatever reason, the patient is not improving. You know, and the reason why I bring this up is because um, I find that throughout my illustrious EMS career, I always had an instructor here and there who was a bit of a dick, where when you did a scenario, no matter what you did in that scenario, you were wrong. He was like, he would tell you that nothing changed and you'd have to figure something else out. And it was like, you get to a point, hey man, can you give me like a little bit of a win here on this scenario so I feel better about what I'm doing? But, and now looking back, it's like those... It was the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. Those, those, those training you guys know that? sessions, you know, those training live sessions and kind of, kind of you know, prepared me for when I had the re had that in real time, you know? Um, so it's sort of just like... You're saying it did not prepare you for when you No, had it did. It did. Because it, it, oh. it, you know... Now, granted, it wasn't every time. If I had an instructor doing that every time I sat down to a scenario, and each time I, you know, the patient didn't survive or I, whatever I was doing didn't work, that'd be a little defeating. But it was the occasional thing where you'd have the one instructor that you knew, okay, this guy or this girl is going to find all kinds of zebras and, and twist and turn so that no matter what I do, nothing's going to happen. It's going to improve this patient, right? Mm -hmm. So the same thing goes, you know, for the street. Like, it kind of prepared me so when it did happen in the street, I was able to not necessarily turn the patient around because you, know, you can't control those things, but I was able to control myself and myself from not panicking, not you know, just grabbing all kinds of stuff out of the out of the out of the box and trying anything, and just using the thought process of what I was doing for the patient. You know, so I wonder what you guys, what your take is on that. You know, instructors that engage you in that way, and do you think it it does help students when they get out there and they have those types of calls? I'd like to say a short thing, and then I really want to hand it over to Dave, who is our resident expert in, in this field. But um, I think one of the things that came up when I was in first in paramedic school was the aspect of, you know, the confidence that we have to have on the job that we're doing the right thing. And that confidence exudes to your partner, exudes, you know, it uh, bolsters yourself and and supports the patient. So when you have that sort of confidence, I'm making the right decision, I know what I'm doing here, this is what's going on, and then you run into you know, the friction of not getting the results you're expecting, your ability to handle that is, is also important. But I think that if you've had sort of an instructing uh, world where you weren't able to build that confidence, that could be very detrimental. Mm. Dave? Huh. So listen, I, one of the things I remember, I, I, I can talk about the educational part, but there, there was nothing, there was almost nothing more satisfying for me than going to hypoglycemic calls. I would look at that, I would get the blood sugar, the blood sugar is 20, and I would go, I can fix that. 
And there was really, it, it was so satisfying. And fortunately, so many people had these events that, you know, you start with IVs and you give them glucose and they wake up. Um, they, uh, you can't get the IV and you give them glucagon and they wake up a little later. Or, or, or maybe even the, the drug overdose, the simple drug overdose call where they're out for the count, everybody's yelling and screaming. You give a little bit of Narcan and they're back. And, you know, you get the immediate feedback that you've done the right thing. And that feels right. terrific. Yeah. But sometimes. Let me up the ante on that. You know, how about the, you know, the arrest when you get there? It's not even where you arrive. You arrive there. The person's sick. They arrest in front of you. You snap. You know, you work like a machine and the person comes back and then they want an RMA, of course. But the person comes back and is like, what happened? I mean, that holy crap is like. That's the summation of all my training and all the practice and all the experience because I literally just brought somebody back from the dead right in front of me and they're going to be intact and it's going to be a good day. Um, and yeah. and along, with, with that, along with that and consistent with what Jim is saying, uh, how, how the training gets, lets you go from one to the next to the next to the next when you don't meet success. There were a couple of calls that I can recall right now that I was on where where I got there and I was second. We had a first responder medic on scene with an eight-year-old who was tachycardic, uh, really tachycardic. I mean, it would have killed us, you know, they, they have like pulse of 200. And uh, and I get there and the guy says, the medic says to me, listen, he's, he's, got, a, he's got an SVT going here. He said, I've given him, I've had him blow through a straw. I asked him to bear down. Um, and he goes through this whole list. You know, you go one after the other for vagal maneuvers. And uh, so I, I heard him go through the list. And I said, I, I look up at the parents. And I said, you got a, you got any frozen peas in the freezer? In the freezer? And they looked at me like I had three heads. And I said, no, really, a bag of frozen peas. They get the bag of frozen peas. I, I tell the kid to hold it on his face nice and firm. And in like three seconds, we're looking at the EKG. Bah! It popped. We went right into sinus. Uh, he went first first down to like 120, and then it just went down from there. He's doing the dance of joy, and um, he uh, the, and the family was terrific. But that was because when you teach ACLS enough, you 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 go through all of these vagal maneuvers, uh, and you know them in your head. A, a similar call, I got there with a, with a new paramedic, and I got there, he was sweating. The paramedic was sweating, and the patient was sweating. Same thing, some sort of SVT going on, but this was an adult. And uh, and he says, and I could see it, he's running back and forth to the uh, to the life pack, and he's connecting the electrodes, and the electrodes are falling off because the guy's sweating like crazy. And he says, I asked him to bear down. I asked him to blow through the straw. I thought, you so I, I said, I went over and I put my hands on his shoulders. I, he's lean, I said, lean back. He leans back. I said, now sit up. And I stopped him from sitting up. And he goes, <clears throat> like that. And he drops down to 110. And he feels better. But it's because, it's because in the original learning, we learned 50 ways to, uh, to, Stop to stimulate the vagus, to stimulate the vagus nerve, you know, or, or you know, to, or to pray things down. That, so that's what we did. And I, I think, I think it's good to do that. A whole bunch of 
making it more and more difficult, but not, and this is key, instructors are told and taught, that's not the first scenario you give people. Right. The first scenario is kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. They're right. not breathing. You ventilate them. The chest goes up. The SpO2 goes up. The untitled CO2 goes down and the patient comes back. You know, you do that. You make it a little bit more complicated and a little bit more complicated than that. You know, maybe maybe the next time you're retrieving a person from the water and you got to deal with the water. And then the next time, you know, it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And sometimes, sometimes there's nothing you can do. Listen, the truth is, even in the hospital, sometimes people die. You can do everything right and people are going to die, but you need to keep you need to keep going through what the most likely thing is, what the less, next most likely thing is. Hey, listen, somebody passes out. First thing you do, you get their, their back, they get a 12 feet. Why? Because if they're having the heart problem, we want to know, we want to know now. Well, we the 12 lead, 12 lead reveals nothing. You know, uh, you, you check for a stroke. You, you, you know, you go on to the next thing. You think about maybe pulmonary embolism. You think you just go through it and through it and through it. Right. You know, Dave, I, I have to say, you know, in on back, back on the backside of that is, you know, the, the old adage, if you've watched Apollo, th Apollo 13, it's like, work the problem, folks, work the problem. And Always that's, have what, that's if you leave, if you leave your EMS instruction and you have that sensibility of, okay, I'm going to try. I mean, I, I can, I can refer to a, the, the book, the right stuff. It was all about the fighter pilots before they entered the space program. And the great, the great test pilots were known to try one thing. And then methodically, they're they're plummeting towards the ground at Mach two, and they're trying one thing, and they're going on to the next, and trying the next thing. And really, what I want to bring this back to a question to you, Dave, based on your experience of you know, umpteen years as a as a professor involved in EMS instruction, and and all of these factors around educating, uh, you know, the, the responders that go into the field. Is there is there a, an aspect of that in the instruction sphere, giving your students the taste of success, saying to them, "You've done it right." Build on that, and that, and they carry that forward, and hopefully with them when they leave the program. Yeah, the of course, of, of course, they're, they're supposed to get that, and and not only tell them that they did it right. And I just finished writing this. I have a uh, an instructor update coming this weekend. Not only saying, "Hey," as an example of, "Hey, you put that splint you put on, you did a good splint." You not only tell them they did a good splint, you tell them why it was a good splint. You yeah. got there, you stabilized it, you 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 assessed, you measured, you found the right splint, you applied the splint atraumatically, it immobilized. Above and below the break, it immobilized the joints above and below. You put it on beautifully. You did a reassessment at the end. You considered, you know, pain management, whatever. You go through the whole thing. But you, you don't just say, good job. Guys, yeah. that was a good job. You tell them why it was a good job. That I wonder if there's any correlation to that and, um, you know, teaching. against negative <laughs> feedback. In, no, in no, the correlation in terms of between positive and negative feedback in instruction. I'm, I would think 
that if I put on a splint, you know, or was doing it for the first time in, in a classroom setting and my instructor went to me, that's a good job. Yeah, that's great. I think I, okay, I did everything right. If he went through the, you check peripheral pulses, you stabilize the limb, you did this, you, you asked your partner to get something, you worked as a team and I'm built on all of those things. I would remember that a hell of a lot more and walk away with that. I do wish I was your teacher. Yeah, uh, you well, have been Josh, it's funny. I was just going to say that I always found that I got so much more out of these scenarios when, whether it was me or somebody else who went to the scenario after it was done, it was a critique of the scenario itself. What could have been done better? What was done well? What did somebody miss? And I always kind of found because as you're watching, if you're not doing the scenario, you're one of the spectators. You're supposed to be. You're not looking at your freaking phone. You're supposed to be saying to yourself, okay, I think he missed that part. And then after the fact, when you critique it, you can kind of bring that out and find out if it was detrimental, did it really matter, and things like that. I know, like I said, with, with scenarios, I would sit there, we'd be a big group, and then everyone would be going through the whole, like Dave said, nice and simple. Everyone says, then I get up there, and all of a sudden, everything I'm doing is wrong. I'm it's like, Jim's oh turn in the barrel. Really yeah, I'm really, you know, doing the pooch here, and everybody else did a great job, and my patient is not going anywhere. And then after the fact, when we did the critique, I found out, okay, it wasn't that I was doing anything wrong. It's just that he wanted to demonstrate that everything you do doesn't always have that positive effect. And, yeah, like you said, Dave, you have to keep thinking, what's the next thing? What else can I try? What else could be going on? Things like that. And it helps you be – a, a, a better critical thinker with that, you know. And if we have instructors that are watching this, I just want to know. I just want you to know there there, there are rep, there are repercussions to being that negative person. I still recall when I did my national registry uh, uh, paramedic, and I was doing it with my class, who we're all paramedics, we're we're all seasoned individuals. And we're all so we all started out as EMTs in the field and every single one of us got failed on the longboard and the longboard was being supervised by an EMT and he was just like hypercritical. You know what happened? That EMT wasn't invited back. for the <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, but I, I did want to address something, Josh, that you brought up. What if people are doing it wrong? What's the approach to that? As long as you mentioned the education, right. this is what I would do. Somebody puts on the splint and I look at it and I say, you know, that's not right. So what I don't want to do, I, I certainly don't want to humiliate anybody. I want right. to say to them, I want to say to them, what are the principles of splinting? And do you think you did it? So, you know, here's the deal. What is the Get principles of critical? Yeah, let them do it. Did you? Yeah. So if they, if they know if they don't know the principles, then that's where I have to go. I got to go back and tell them what the principles are. The principles are to prevent more more harm. To be able to, you know, these are the things that we assess that we apply the splint that causes the immobilization, and we apply it atraumatically. Those are the principles. And if they don't know, and, and when we're done, it's splinted. So. If I say, if they, you know, sometimes you get people and they got a beautiful end product. It is a beautiful end product. It looks just like the one with the guy before them. And I named everything they did that was right. And I said, well, so what are the principles here? Well, the principles are that we uh, we apply it atraumatically. Well, so 
Do you think you did that? Let's ask the patient. Uh, you, you know, Just and, raise your shoulder did, over your head and I'll get this around. Oh, you. oh uh, you know, do you, Look, do you, you, know remember, what? you remember I, when I, they used I, to I, put people in a KED and rotate them upside down? <laughs> Oh wow, God. they did that until they were dropping people. How about or, how about uh, on the longboard? Yes. Strap them into the longboard, carry them upside down. When the hell are you ever going to do that? And let me tell you something, just don't do that. It was so you know, dangerous. One of the, and, and as instructors, our job is to understand how our student is thinking about- the Model appropriate uh, behavior. The They're going to remember the upside down thing as if it's something you're supposed to do you're to right. test yeah. how well you did it. Really? <laughs> Exactly. One of the most, listen, one of the most um, a challenging uh, pay, uh, uh, students that I've ever had was actually in just a regular CPR BLS course. And for some reason, the guy could not wrap himself. And this is back in the day that we used the alcohol swab and just went, went on the, you know, mouth to mouth, no barrier, no nothing. And and this guy, and he was trying so hard, he'd get red in the face. And it took a good five to 10 minutes of observation to realize that the guy was, as soon as he put his lips on the mannequin, sucking in. And, and I couldn't stop. I was like, I would take him away and I'd say, look, just stand here in front of me. Now blow air out through your mouth. And he would blow air out through your mouth. Okay. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to take. We're trying to inflate this person's chest and give them air to their lungs and try it again and suck, suck, suck. And, and it was just like, what the heck? And I finally found a, a bag of a balloons that was, you know, used in a party or something like that. And I said, blow up this balloon. Now do it again. Now do it again. You see what you're doing with the balloon? Do that there. And we broke through, but it took that that stand apart time, you know, that uh, unfortunately took from the rest of the class. But this was a fundamental concept that had to be applied in the field. And he was not going to pass the class, much less get it or do any good if he couldn't get that that get past that. And I think as as instructors, it's our duty to be able to not only teach the right way, but recognize when our students are sort of on the wrong track. Yeah. All right, guys, I guess we'll end the day. I mean, I, I really appreciate you guys coming on here. I think we you know, covered a few topics, but I think it's, I know it jumps around. They don't really relate to each other, you know, bathroom breaks and, and uh, you know. CPR. Yeah, and, and calls that don't go the right way. But I think it, um, you know, it, it, it keeps people a little bit uh, engaged when they're watching. And I really appreciate everyone that showed up today to watch the show. Be sure to hit the like button, like button below, and let us know you're watching and you're engaged. Um, and that's really about it. Josh, anything you want to mention before we head out? No. Uh, you know, uh, as uh, as I've said, uh, I still uh, – I still make the best wrench uh, available. And one of the things that I'm noticing, Jim, is that in other marketplaces where I don't, I just sell exclusively off my website, as you can see down here, o2wrench.com. Um, but um, 
that there are you can buy a much cheaper made metal wrench on Amazon and pay almost the same amount that you're going to do is pay for mine. So I'd, I'd like to, you know, like to steer you away if you're listening to this uh, podcast, you know, know that there's only one place to get the uh, want to new um, uh, oxygen wrench, and that's on want to new. So it's otwrench.com, oxygenwrench.com. Spell it wrong. I don't care. You'll get there. You know, right? Google it. Find that. All right, Dave. Anything you want to mention? Yeah, I'm, I'm coming up to. Uh, I'm going to be presenting in Kansas at the uh, Kemsa conference in August. I'll be at New York State Vital Signs in Saratoga Springs and the New York State Volunteer Ambulance and Rescue Association. They're going to be having their conference in Albany. I'll be there this uh, this fall as well. Did I say spring? Fall. Uh, I think you did. Yeah. Fall, fall, fall for uh, Saratoga Springs as well. Ah, and, well, uh, that's why you said that's spring. why. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's uh, you it. know what? I, I oh, go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. No, I thought that's of an it. afterthought. That's it. Um, you know, just on a safety related aspect, Jim, uh, I just wanted to say, you know, I, one of the things I'm a I'm a, a Center for Domestic Preparedness uh, WMD instructor. I am a um, uh, IED suicide bomb instructor. Uh, not that I teach you how to do that. I teach you how to be aware of what it can do and how to look for the people that look suspicious. But that's what that course is. I highly recommend if you haven't taken either of them, you go online and look for them. They're, they're there. But there has been a lot of very disturbing reports from the FBI lately on the increase of uh, domestic terrorist uh, chatter and uh, activity. And um, I want us all to be safe out there. So, you know, when you're getting up in the morning, if your bus isn't parked in a secure location, walk around your bus, look for things that don't aren't in place, uh, be aware of your surroundings and that situational awareness. And remember, if you're unfortunate enough to actually be in a situation where there is has been a bombing or you're responding to something like that, remember secondary devices. Yeah. And I, and I want you guys to stay safe out there. All right. Well, we end it there, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us. As always, I am Jim Hoffman. Josh Knapp. Dave Brenner. Stay safe.